Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Uh, We are looking at Focus Core Value 5 tonight. We have six core values, so we're getting to the end. We've done the uh, first four already, and just a little reminder tonight... And I will not make you guess tonight. Tonight, I'll just remind you. Uh, At Focus, we seek to make the the church the best place to ask the most important questions. Core value number two was at Focus, we seek to make everyone's journey a little easier today by a kind word, a simple service, simple service, pardon me, and a stewardship of God's grace. We seek to facilitate many-to-many discipleship rather than merely discussion. And we seek to encourage a unity of faith rather than a unanimity of thought and action. And if you've missed any of those, the podcast has them all. I encourage you to go back and listen to them. They, as we've talked about before, these uh, core values are foundational. We built on them. They are expository. They explain why we do everything we do. And they are driving in that they push us forward as well. So if you have any questions about them, uh, take them up and listen to them. I know some of our groups are also doing a study on them. Many of our groups have done a study on them in the past. And um, that's always available too, if you would like to do it in your group as well. So tonight, uh, we're going to look at core value number five. And as we do, we're actually, I've got John 5, 39 through 40 up here. We're going to look at that in a second, but we're going to spend most of our time tonight actually in Romans chapter eight. So if you are uh, somebody who's looking and following along in your Bible, feel free, pull up Romans eight. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And I want to say something about that because we're going to be spending so much time in the passage and and, uh, just something about scripture. It relates to our core value, but maybe not precisely in the way that you might be expecting, but it does relate. And I want to just say this kind of as a preamble to everything, that the Bible is, is, is an amazing book. Uh, it's a book that I think is overlooked too, too easily, uh, certainly by the world, but even by Christians in the church. We don't, we don't give it the time. We don't spend the, the amount of time understanding it and reading it and immersing ourselves in it that we should. And I, but I think for part of that is because we really have... Um, shorted the importance of the Bible by describing it the wrong way. I think that a lot of times we think of the Bible as a manual for life, kind of as a, there's even a, an acronym some people use that the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. And that's cute and it spells the word Bible, but I don't think that's a very good description of what actually the Bible is. It's, it's so much more than basic instructions. It, it, to treat it like a technical piece of technical writing, like a manual where you're supposed to to read it, to know exactly how to live your life, I think is to sell it short. Now, that's not to say that the Bible doesn't have a lot of wisdom. It has a great deal of wisdom. And it isn't to say that the Bible can't give you some good guidance on how you should live your life. It absolutely can. But if we only see it as a reference book, as a technical manual to tell us how to live from moment to moment, not only will we run into issues when it doesn't seem to address a very specific and narrow practical situation that we might find ourselves in, but I think more than that, we're missing the real point. Because the Bible is not simply a manual for the way you should live your life. The Bible is this, is this ancient book of wisdom full of incredible depth that not only does propose answers to some of our most significant questions. As a pastor, it's interesting that I run into questions all the time from young believers and unbelievers and new believers and people who haven't thought through these issues a lot or haven't spent a lot of time in Scripture and they think they're coming up with really new questions a lot of times that the Bible has dealt with for, for centuries for millennia, and, and in a really deep and profound way. And unfortunately, some people think the Bible is simply a, a book that gives some pat answers, and because of that, they miss the point. The Bible isn't a reference book. It answers these questions not by simply going through and giving us, again, instructions, but it answers the questions by telling us an amazing, incredible story. It answers the questions that we have by painting a picture of what the universe actually looks like, by giving us a, an idea of the God who runs the universe and what he's actually like. It, it goes through history and shows us this, this progression of God's relationship with his people and his people with God. And it gives us this picture, this image of, of how the universe unfolds and where it's actually going and why it's going there. And that's really what the Bible is about, is to give us this epic, mythical, and I don't mean by mythical that it isn't real, but I mean it has the power and beauty of the best myths that we know. It gives us this this story that has the power of both myth and reality. 
And it, it gives us this picture of incredible beauty and truth. And it's amazing how often we just overlook this. We don't spend the time to be in Scripture to see that it gives us this just incredible grasp of the universe, of what it's about, and who we are. So because we have such a high view of Scripture, we haven't really come to our fifth core value yet, but because we have such a high view of Scripture, it, it makes sense that in many of our groups, those of you who are in our focus groups, you, you see that Scripture is a staple, right? It is something that is frequently used um, as we are discipling each other. And it makes sense because it becomes a really good framework for all of the four core values we've talked about so far. When we talk about being able to answer the most important questions, well, we find that Scripture, understanding that story, understanding the context that Scripture gives us helps us to answer those questions, that Scripture actually deals with the most important questions on our plate anyway. A lot of the Scripture writers and a lot of the heroes in Scripture are asking the very same questions that we would be asking. And even when Scripture doesn't give us a point-by-point -point answer, it's, it's encouraging and explains a lot just to see that some of the heroes have these questions. Uh, the, the, or, for example, when we talk about making the journey easier, it helps us understand what the journey is when we see what's in Scripture. Or, for example, when we want to talk about uh, using our stewardship of grace. Again, it gives us the framework and the environment in which our stewardship of grace takes place. And when we want to grow in our faith, which is the bottom line, to have a unity of faith, it is the Scripture that helps us know who this person is that we're united around. Who is the Lord and what does our faith look like? So all of our leaders, all our focus leaders, we may have some differing views on certain aspects of Scripture, but all our leaders of all our focus groups agree that Scripture has authority to change our lives and affect our lives. <laughs> I see. Uh, is our Facebook not on? Oh, wow. Very cool. So you can see me and the screen both if you're on Facebook, if you get the right thing. Um, so here's the thing about the, 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 uh, the strength with which we see Scripture and the importance that we see it. This is one of those things that is part of our evangelical legacy. And we do have our, our roots, as do many, many churches, almost all Protestant churches in America right now have their roots in an evangelical legacy. This is one of the parts of evangelical legacy that is a good and valuable part. There are, there are certain aspects, as there are always, of, because it's created and, and filled with humans, there are certain aspects of the evangelical world that I would be happy to disavow. There are certain parts that I am not happy to be part of. There are times I've thought about doing away with the label altogether. And to be honest, I don't really know what we are. I think it's all emerging who, who and what all churches should call themselves in the future. But I do think that this idea that we are people of the book, this concept that evangelicals have had for years and years, that what we want to do is get back to Scripture, that we want to follow what Scripture says and we want to immerse ourselves in that, that's a part of our legacy I really want to hold on to because I think it is this beautiful and amazing book. However, I think it is relevant and important for us to recognize those of us who have this evangelical legacy that the people that we are most similar to in the time of Jesus in the New Testament are not the apostles but the Pharisees. And I don't mean by that everything negative. There's some negative in that. But I mean that the Pharisees themselves saw themselves as people of the book. They, they revered the law. In fact, they saw the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature as all being relevant and important. And they wanted to preserve it and uphold it. In fact, you've probably heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And one of the distinctions between these two sects, these two Jewish sects, was that the Pharisees were the people of the book. They emphasized that. The Sadducees only believed that the first five books the Pentateuch, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they believed that was only the scripture that we needed, but they also emphasized the temple. They were people of the temple, and that's how they regarded themselves. Obviously, both were important, but this was kind of the battle. So it's the Pharisees who had sort of this evangelical position that were people of the book. We're going we're gonna to honor the scripture, we're going to honor the laws, and we're going to follow what they say. And that, as we've talked about, is not a bad thing. But in that context, it is relevant, I think, for us to remember and this moves into our core value today, it is relevant for us to remember that Jesus said to the Pharisees when he spoke to them, he said this, John 5, 39 through 40, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. This is interesting because I think evangelicals, a lot of churches would say the scriptures do have the words of eternal life, right? 
We would say this is where we learn about eternal life. This is where we learn about salvation. This is where we learn about the Messiah. But Jesus has a bone to pick with them. He says you study the scriptures diligently. He, he acknowledges they do because you think in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Somewhere along the way, the Pharisees who really revered the law did not recognize when the one who came to fulfill the law arrived. The Pharisees who really honored the prophets did not recognize when the very prophesied Messiah arrived. The Pharisees who really held in high esteem the wisdom literature did not recognize when the God of all wisdom himself, who said, I am the truth, showed up right in front of them. Somehow in their adherence to the scripture, to the words, to the text, to the Bible, to the law, as they had it, they missed what it was all about. And they missed Jesus in the midst of it. And so it is possible they were doing what we what we have a tendency to do, which is to see the Bible as some sort of quiz book, which we need to pass, some sort of proof of intellectual ability that if we understand weird and obscure passages, uh, some kind of guidebook or technical manuscript for life, even a proof of our own intelligence that we know so much of it. Instead of seeing it as an incredible story, a true story of God's love for us and of his plan for redemption, the whole purpose of scripture is to point us to Jesus, to walk through this story and show us how the universe itself is in this process from creation to redemption. And this is the point of scripture that the Pharisees missed. So one implication of this for us, and this is not our core value, but here's a challenging thought for you. One implication is that we do not believe that scripture is God's main curriculum for discipleship. Now this may sound wrong. <laughs> I know that for me, it would, it would have sounded very wrong years ago. If somebody had said to me, scripture is not God's main curriculum for discipleship, I would have thought that they had created a curriculum that they wanted to sell. I would have thought that they had created something else that they wanted to supplant the scripture with and say, this is what's really important. And so rest assured, I'm not here to say that the little books that I've written are our main curriculum. They're absolutely not. We're not doing that. But I want you to see here that what Jesus said to the Pharisees is they were missing something when they looked to the, to the law as their main curriculum for righteousness and growth. They were missing what it was really pointing to. And likewise, we don't believe that Scripture is God's main curriculum for discipleship. It is a framework. It is a context. It is a beautiful story. It gives us the ability to be part of discipleship. And I would even say it may be a necessary part of discipleship but it is not the main curriculum for discipleship. And in fact, I would argue, as much as I would say, in all things being equal, scripture is necessary for discipleship. It's certainly something we, we again, adhere to and find very important. I would say that God has proven that he can disciple people where he needs to without scripture at all. So the deal is that we believe God's curriculum is something more immediate, more relevant, and harder to ignore. The truth is, if scripture is God's main curriculum for discipleship, part of the problem with that is, as we already talked about, so many people who go to church just don't give the time to it they should. And again, I think if you did, that would be better for you. But God is not relying upon you doing that to, for your discipleship. <laughs> there is something harder to ignore, something that happens, something that God created as a curriculum which you cannot avoid. Even when you neglect this incredible book, which is a shame. When you do not see the scripture as the treasure it is, you are missing out. But even when you do that, God still speaks and his curriculum is still available to you. So ironically, to see this point tonight, we're going to look at scripture. <laughs> but we're going to see the scripture from the vantage point of unfolding this great and mighty mystery of the universe. As we read through this, we're not reading a manual for discipleship. We're not reading a manual for what we should do. We're going to read this to see what an incredible gift the scriptures are, to see this incredible, beautiful story from creation to redemption that is laid out in just this one little chapter. Imagine if we had time to go through the entire book of Romans, what we'd see. You're going to see why scriptures are worthy of more attention than you typically give them, but we also are going to see why there's a greater curriculum that God offers and what that greater curriculum is. So let's just take a little, a little walk through Romans 8. We're not even starting at the beginning of Romans 8. There's so much here. We're starting somewhere around the middle. 
He says, I consider, says Paul, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Again, this has to be more than just simply an exhortation to endure suffering. Of course it's an exhortation to endure suffering, but why? What is the grasp? What is the story? We're jumping a little bit into the middle of it here, and those of you who've been through our foundation series earlier will, will recognize some of these things, but the bottom line point is this. He says the entire creation, everything, the whole universe, is waiting in eager expectation, like in the pains of childbirth, is in a suffering mode, is in a mode where there's pain and there's contractions and there's longing, but what's coming at the end of this is something beautiful and amazing, just like a human being born. And he says in this process, as the creation is, is waiting in expectation for something, he says this amazing thing. He says part of what the creation is waiting for is for the children of God to be revealed. Somehow we are part of this amazing thing. So there's this incredible story of the whole universe waiting for something to happen. And then there's this incredible story that the children of God are somehow part of this amazing thing that's going to happen. He says the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So a lot of ways to read that. My personal understanding is this is referring also to the children of God before they were children of God. It was Adam and Eve. It was, it was humanity who subjected the universe to the fall. We made the choice, which led the universe, the world, to be spoiled and frustrated from its plan. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. But what's happening is the universe now waits in anticipation for those same people who subjected it to be redeemed. And as they're redeemed, it becomes that hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay. This idea of entropy. We live in a universe where entropy is a thing. We are so used to the idea of entropy being an, an, an unbreakable law, Right? It's a physical law that cannot be broken. Things decay. Things fall apart. That happens. It is one of the things we know for sure. This is why the idea of happy endings and eternal life and, and a heaven that's full of new things every day is almost impossible for us to comprehend because it violates all the laws of which we live right now. But he says this bondage to decay is something that the universe will be freed from. There will be a liberation. There's something that's happening that the universe is waiting for. And he says in that that the whole creation is groaning. There's a suffering that happens to the whole creation, but it's just childbirth. Something amazing is coming. And now you go back up to the top and he connects us to this. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, he's not, he's not diminishing suffering. This is what you have to understand. Paul is a guy who understood suffering. Paul was beaten and beaten and beaten. He was imprisoned and he was shipwrecked and his life was not one of comfort. If you think that the early church was only began because the people who led the early church had the kind of prestige and status and wealth that you sometimes see in a televangelist, you're just wrong. The life of the early apostles, this is why it's so amazing that they continue to proclaim the risen Christ is because there's no benefit to them in lying. And so Paul lived a life of suffering. Ultimately, he died executed by the Romans. And when he says, I consider our present sufferings, he's a man who walked the streets of Rome and watched some of his fellow Christians being burned as human torches to light the streets of Rome. He says, I consider that our present sufferings just, they aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed on us. As bad as they are, they're not compared. And you say, how can that be? It is like childbirth. The pain that you, why do, why do women have more than one child? <laughs> because the glory that is revealed is bigger than the pain that is felt. The pain is not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed. And that's 
Not even on the scale this is. That's just a comparison. Because then you have teenage years and you might wonder again. But generally, <laughs> this idea of birth, the pain that's here, he's saying that our suffering, there is this hope, there is this redemption. So there's this incredible, grand, epic story of the universe which is moving from this frustration to liberation, from decay to life. It's just this amazing, incredible picture of the history of the universe. You know, it's interesting as, as we now have a telescope out there that they were able to super cool. One of the things they had to do was super cool it because what it's doing is it's looking at light waves that have been stretched out so much over time because they're so old that they're, they're in the infrared, but they're, they're such a, such a, 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 a uh, small amount of infrared light that most telescopes produce too much heat and they can't see it. So they super cool this new telescope that's out there, bring it down low enough that it can see this red light that is stretched out, invisible to our eyes, but it can see it. And that means they're now looking back to the beginning of the universe. I mean, in the scheme of the universe, they are, they are inches away from the beginning of it. And they're discovering a lot of things. One is that there is a beginning. They've theorized this for a long time. Now they are recognizing science very clearly says there is a beginning to the universe. There is a moment where it began, which is certainly something Scripture has been saying forever. But not only is it telling us that there's a beginning to the universe, it's telling us that there's a progression to the universe. It's telling us that there is this expansion that's been happening from the very beginning and has continued to happen. The universe is not cyclical and it's not static. It's moving forward. And scripture tells us the same thing about the history of the universe, that it's not cyclical and it's not static and it's not backwards, but it's moving forward. And the direction it's moving forward is from decay to redemption. And the redemption, not only of us, but the entire universe. And this is something that every part of the universe feels in its bones. This great labor is occurring, this pain of childbirth, which ultimately will be forgotten when something amazing and new is birthed. He goes on, he says this, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, even our very bodies will be made new. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Of course we're suffering. Of course our bodies are falling apart. Of course we're feeling the pain of childbirth because what we hope in hasn't happened yet. The redemption hasn't come yet. No. No. I didn't put all, I didn't put all the passages on the slide. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way, he says, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we have to pray for, but the spirit intercedes himself for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. It's interesting. It's like we're in this great childbirth and we don't even know what we want. And I've never been a woman in childbirth, just in case that is not clear. I have witnessed it a few times, only with one woman, just also to be clear. But one of the things that I could imagine being true, and the women will have to tell me if this is true or not, is that at a certain point of the labor, it would be kind of easy to forget why on earth you started this in the first place. Why am I doing this? (laughs) This is just awful. And so sometimes you have a, a doctor or a nurse or a doula or a midwife, right? And part of what they do, I realize they're physically helping you through it. But I've also heard the way they speak. And part of what they're doing is reminding you why you're doing this. They're like, there's a child coming. <laughs> you're doing great. Even though it feels like you're just suffering. You're doing great. And so this doula kind of intercedes to help you remember what the suffering's about and to help you remember with every groan of pain what it is that you really want, which is this child. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we always want. We don't know how to pray. We don't understand the redemption to come. I believe that God cares about what we pray for, and he gives us good gifts, and sometimes we ask for things that make no difference to anything in the universe, and he gives them to us just because he loves us. But I also believe that he understands the big picture and the child that's coming. And so sometimes the spirit intercedes for us. And when we groan, we don't know what we're groaning for. We're just longing. We just want something better. And the spirit prays for that better because the spirit knows what it is. 
and intercedes for us to speak it. Not overriding what our heart says, but speaking what really is in our heart so that the will of God and our groaning are actually completely aligned in reality. And then he says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us to to pray for those things to come, that redemption to come. And we have this context of of our suffering being part of a labor that's going to produce something great for our revelation as children of God, to be revealed our glory. And this says that God works all things towards that end. When it says we know that in in all things God works for the good of those who love him, I think in this context he's specifically talking about our redemption and our growth. And there's nothing that happens that isn't part of that process. There's nothing that happens that doesn't move us that direction. The very discipleship that we want with each other, where we grow in our faith and we become more like Jesus, this says God uses everything towards that. And what does everything mean? It means everything. What about when you make a mistake? It means everything. What about when you sin? It means everything. What about when you're just sick of God and you yell at him and you're mad and you're tired of it all and none of it makes any sense at all? It means everything. What about when you have victory and joy? It means everything. There's not a single thing that happens in your life that God isn't using to move you forward in this process, this incredible process of redemption. One of the reasons that I think the birth of a child overrides the pain so that the woman forgets and has another child later or makes it worth it, however you want to put it. I think one of the reasons is because you, you see it. It's because the, the, the glory happens. And this is why Paul says when we reach the moment when we see the glory, we'll look at our suffering and it will make sense at that moment. And a lot of it will turn out to be just different than we thought it was. Not as important as we thought it was. We, we see, he goes on, he says this, he says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. You know, when you have that child, that's when you, the child is there. You're like, oh yeah, that's what it was about. You remember. And this is telling us that it is going to happen. Sadly, because we live in a world of entropy, Not every child is successfully born. I can imagine almost nothing more crushing than that, to go through the pain and the suffering and not end up with that child. But this is the great promise from God that he's going to make it happen. Don't get hung up on the words like predestined. This isn't about the way you get saved. This is about what happens as a result of your salvation. The rest is an argument we can have another time. He's saying that those who are are, 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 Children of God will be conformed to the image of his son. We will be completed. This process will happen. The child will be born. And that hope can help us. So we have two main points here. One is that God works everything in our lives towards this great redemption. Everything, your mistakes, your sins, your victories, your depression, your fragility, your sickness, your wellness, everything. Now, God is not spoken here as making all these things happen, but he is spoken of as working in all these things to your benefit. And I think it is fair to think of it that way. I don't think that God causes all the great evil and suffering in our lives. Much of it is caused by other men. Some of it is caused by the entropy of the universe. God doesn't cause all that, but he works in all that. He makes it meaningful. And number two, he has a plan. We will be like Jesus. We will be justified and glorified. He goes on. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? So here's Paul. He's laid out this incredible cosmic plan, this picture, this story, this beautiful story of creation leading to redemption. And he says, what should we say in response to this? What does it mean? How should we respond to this idea that God is committed to taking us through our suffering and even using that for our glory? What shall we say in response to these things? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Look, in all our suffering, if God is working in it to make it all work out, if he's on our side, if he's not mad at us, if he's not using it to pull back, then who can be against us? What does it matter? What can anyone else do? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
everything we need. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life. Here's the reminder. Jesus died. That's the entropy. But what happened? After the pain and the suffering of the death, he came back to life. There's the glory. What Jesus did on the cross is a microcosm of what will happen for us. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. Again, this is a man who knew suffering. This is Paul speaking of his own life. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, when he talks about trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, what would it mean to be a conqueror of those? It would mean that you would no longer have trouble. You would no longer have hardship. You wouldn't be persecuted anymore. You would have food to eat. You would be clothed. You would be safe. And the sword wouldn't be able to hurt you. That's what being a conqueror would be. And that seems plenty. But he says we're more than conquerors because by leading us through these things and not always immediately conquering them, we become more than conquerors. We become this great redemption. We become this glorification. Jesus was more than conqueror over death. He didn't simply step off the cross and refuse to die. He passed through it. And as a result of that, he's more than a conqueror. And so too are we. It's not just about overcoming our earthly suffering. It is that we cannot be removed from the love of God. We're going to be redeemed completely. And then he says this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, nothing. This is Paul's Hebraic way of saying nothing. He lists all the things he can think of. Death and life and angels and demons and present and future. Powers, height or death, or in case he missed something, anything else in all creation. In fact, if you take everything that's in creation out of the context, who is the only, what is the only thing that can separate us from the love of God? God. And God's already committed to not doing that. So therefore... Your mistakes, your sins, your issues, your fragility, your lack of ability, your frustration, your lack of faith, none of that can separate you from the love of God. So let's recap. The entire universe is moving to revelation and redemption. This is where he says, he starts. He says the entire universe is moving from where it is of ignorance and frustration and entropy to revelation and redemption, understanding and change. Number two, God is determined this will happen. Again, the picture of scripture paints us not a story of a God who set something in motion and stepped back. It paints a picture of a God who's involved and he's committed to making sure that redemption happens. In fact, he's so committed that this was the plan he had before the world was created. Before creation, he had this plan for redemption knowing it would go wrong and knowing that the redemption would be more glorious than what came in between. If God has determined this will happen, and if we are part of this universe, which is moving to revelation and redemption, then think about this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Says Paul. How do we respond to this understanding that we are part of this incredible plan of progression? We respond by recognizing that no matter what we see right now, no matter what the birth pains are right now, that God is on our side and he's moving us somewhere positive. Nothing can separate us from God's love or his plan. And now to draw in something that we talked about last week to add to all this, to put this together. We talked about the fact last week that discipleship is growing in faith and submission to Jesus. What we want people to do is be united around the faith and the submission to Jesus as our Lord. Well, how much greater a thing this is to recognize that we're submitting to the Lord who is committed to work all things out for our good, for our glory, for our redemption. So this is kind of what we've seen in Romans plus 
an understanding about discipleship that comes from other parts of scripture. The entire universe is moving to revelation and redemption. God is determined this will happen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from God's love or his plan. And discipleship is growing in faith and submission to Jesus. So what does this all have to do with what I said about scripture at the beginning? And what does this have to do with our fifth core value? Well, let me rephrase what I said earlier, but give you a little more information. We do not believe that scripture is God's main curriculum for discipleship because it does not tell us what to do at each moment. Discipleship is a moment by moment walking by faith and obedience to Jesus. Scripture says reasons. It tells us why. It gives us a context. It tells us who Jesus is. It tells us that Jesus is committed to us. It tells us that Jesus loves us. It tells us that nothing can separate us from God's love. It tells us that we ought to be submitted to him. It tells us that we ought to listen to him. It tells us that we ought to walk in faith. So when you go to your job and your boss is a jerk and terrible to you and asks you to do something and you're not sure if you should even do it, if you go to scripture to find out if you should do that specific thing, you're unlikely to find an answer. Because the answer will be, walk by faith, follow Jesus. And you say, but how do I do that? Where's the manual for doing that? We talked last week about how there's a certain comfort in having somebody tell you what to think and what to do. It's nice to go to an expert in walking by faith and say, what do I do in this moment? And have him say, here's what you do. Or have her say, here's what you do. It's comfort. But it is by definition not walking by faith, is it? It's not walking in submission to Jesus. It's walking in submission to the person you just asked. <laughs> They can give good advice, but the goal is not for you to simply do what they tell you. The goal is for you to learn what it means to walk by faith. So what we need is something that can teach us at every moment, at every minute, from minute to minute, can actually take these, these concepts that are so big and grandiose and take them in the midst of our life and teach us what we should do at that moment. That's the curriculum we need. Scripture gives us the context for our lives. But where's the curriculum that says, this is how you live your life. This is what you do at this moment. This is what you do when you're so mad at that other person that you could spit, and yet you know you're supposed to love them. This is what you do when you're so depressed that you can't get out of bed, and yet you know you're supposed to help other people. This is what you do when you're just struggling in a sin and a temptation that's overriding you, and you know that you're supposed to be victorious. The scripture tells us what to do, but sometimes, but that's not a curriculum at the moment. It's just words. And those words on a page sometimes don't mean anything in the heat of the moment if we can't see how to use them. What we need is something that can teach us from moment to moment what the action of obedience, what the action of faith, what the action of submission to Jesus would look like. We need something which will teach us to see everything through that filter of God's love and power. We need something which will teach us how to hear Jesus at any given moment. We need something which gives us hands-on practical experience and then feedback when we get it wrong or when we get it right. And a lot of people and a lot of churches and a lot of pastors at this moment would be saying, what is that curriculum? Give that to me. But guess what? We have that curriculum. And it's literally right in front of you. Not me. <laughs> Your life. Your life is the curriculum. If God is working through everything to bring you to redemption, does that not mean that at every moment you are being taught something? You are being directed somewhere? You are being guided in some fashion? You are being corrected in some way? The very fabric of life is our curriculum. One of the things that's fascinating is to go back and watch the way Jesus discipled his apostles and his disciples. For those of you, again, folks groups who are going through this study, you're actually going to look at some of these passages and actually explore how he does it. You'll actually see, but I'll just give you some, some, some heads up on that right now. What Jesus does not do is go through the Old Testament a piece at a time. He doesn't sit down with his apostles and say, let's start in Genesis and work our way through. Now, to be fair, he assumed they had a pretty good grasp of it already. So again, it's not that it's unimportant. <laughs> It provides the framework and the context Jesus has for them. 
but that isn't how he chose to spend his three years of ministry with them. He also didn't create a lesson plan based upon some external outline. He didn't say, well, this week we're going to talk about humility, and then next week we're going to talk about this, and then the week after that we're going to talk about this, and, and here's our outline, and here's the curriculum. They didn't sit down and have a regular Bible study that we're aware of. Well, sure they didn't. What he does is really unusual given that he's God, and that's that he reacts to what the apostles are going through. He responds to what's happening in their lives and to things that they're saying, to what they're wrestling with at any given moment. He walks through life with them, and as things happen and they respond to what's happening, he helps them see it a little bit differently. When somebody dies, he responds as you would when somebody dies. He mourns with them and then helps them understand how to see it a little bit differently, explaining that he's the resurrection and the life. When the apostles get into a, a quarrel about who's most important and who should be regarded by Jesus as the best, he begins to have a discussion about humility. When he gets to the end of his life and he feels like they may still not have gotten this lesson about humility, he washes all their feet. And when Peter reacts to that and, and responds to that, he says, this is what I'm here for. You could argue that one of the reasons Peter got so much out of the ministry of Jesus, I mean, you can argue he got as much as anybody, if not more than anybody, because, man, he was a pillar of the church. You can argue one reason Peter got so much is because he was constantly reacting, responding, and arguing with Jesus. <laughs> and so Jesus had more and more opportunities with him, not simply to correct him with his words, but with life itself. But we don't have Jesus. He doesn't walk with us through life. Except he does. I understand it's not physical. It's not the same. We have the challenge of learning how to hear Jesus when he's not physically here that they didn't have. And I think Jesus acknowledges that when he says to Thomas, blessed are you because you see and believe, but more blessed will be those who don't see and believe. We're compensated for it being slightly harder for us. Our faith, we're made, I think our faith is bolstered by the spirit who intercedes for us with grunts and groans too deep for words. We serve a living and active God. We have to believe he's involved in our lives. This is, this is getting to our core value. This is, a, this is a foundational point to the core value I'm going to give you in a second, which is the confidence and the conviction that what Paul talks about in Romans is true in your life in the microcosm, that God is involved in your life, that he's not just standing back and letting it happen, but just like Jesus did with the apostles, he is literally walking with you through your life and he is every once in a while tapping you on the shoulder or maybe more than every once in a while tapping you on the shoulder and redirecting your gaze through the activities and things that happen. He promised us that he will be with us always for this very purpose. He promised that he's working all things toward our redemption and our good. God is committed to using everything in our lives to build our maturity. At Focus, we believe Jesus when he says he's the head of the church. We believe that because the church was his plan and the church was his tool for the world, that he is very much involved in leading it. We believe that every single member of the church is enrolled in this curriculum of God, which is life. And this leads us to core value five. We seek to accept our life circumstances, good and bad, as part of God's curriculum together with our community. This can absolutely transform the way you go through your life. All those moments that feel like interruptions to you, all those things that feel like frustrations to you, all those things that get in your way, you're moving forward, you're feeling good, life is good, you're having the good time, you're, you're, you feel like you're walking with God well, and then somebody steps in between you and God and ticks you off. Or some circumstance steps in between you and God and consumes your heart and mind. When these things happen, we have a choice. We can say, oh, I need to get around this. I need to conquer this so that I can get back to seeing who Jesus is and walk with him. Or we can say, Jesus, where are you in this? And the answer is not always easy, but the question is, is essential. Jesus, where are you in this? What am I missing? What is it you're trying to teach me? I want to not just get around or through this. I want to do more than conquer this. I want to be more than conqueror. I want to see you. I want to follow your curriculum where it should go. 
When we ignore the tensions in our lives or simply try to cover them up, we, we produce coping habits which aren't great. The secular world will tell you this too. <laughs> we produce coping habits which, which teach us to pretend the tension isn't there and then instead of learning from it, we just repeat the same things. But when we accept the tension is there, but more than that as believers, we can go further. We can accept that in the tension there's a lesson. Remember when I said that I had a, a friend of mine last week who taught me, he didn't teach me last week, but I said last week, that he taught me something when he, instead of asking me, did you have a quiet time, he asked me, what is God teaching you right now? This is what I'm asking you. What is God teaching you right now? And let me remind you, by the way, if you can't figure it out and you don't know what it is, that doesn't mean you fail at this curriculum. It means you say, even this will not separate me from the love of God. I do not know what this is about. I find a lot of God's curriculum is me simply saying, I don't understand, but I will submit. So here's a suggestion of how you can personally work with this core value. Number one, work on adopting the right perspective. Guess what can help with adopting the right perspective? Scripture. <laughs> it's not a manual for life, but it can help you begin to see that we're part of something bigger and part of something that makes everything meaningful. Everything means something. Nothing is actually meaningless if God is in it, and God is in it. God's love and his purpose make it all meaningful. Can we begin to see that the struggles that we have as birth pains? Can we begin to see what looks to us like a distraction from discipleship as the very core of that curriculum? To begin to adopt this perspective, which reminds us how great the love of God is and that nothing can separate us. Because part of the problem is, part of what happens is, when God begins to speak to us through curriculum, one of the things that the devil does is he, he leads us to believe in that, that God's love is less than it is or that we have removed ourselves from it by being so unworthy and so bad. And when we can adopt that perspective that God cannot be separated from us, that he refuses to go away from us, that he continues to love us, it helps us to get back in line with the curriculum that's coming our way. So adopt the right perspective. Immerse yourself in this big picture of, of Scripture that we're part of this incredible cosmic plan of redemption. Everything is. It will make everything both less significant than you thought, and more meaningful than you thought. Number two, accept the good and the bad. This doesn't mean you have to be happy about bad things. You are allowed to grieve and mourn and feel frustrated. The universe feels frustration. You're allowed to. <laughs> it doesn't mean you accept the bad as being a direct punishment or consequence that God is giving you. Very often it's not but it means you learn to accept the good and the bad as part of God's curriculum, as leading to something greater, something better, something more glorious, more joyful. It means that you accept the birthing process is both painful and joyful. And number three, ask for help. Look, you can try to adopt the right perspective and you can try to accept the good and the bad, but there are days you're just not going to have any idea what God is doing in your life and it's just going to feel like it's just bad. Our core value, you'll see it again in a second, but our core value is to accept our life circumstances, good and bad, as part of God's curriculum together with our community. God uses life with our community to teach us. It's our community that makes the journey easier. That's part of the curriculum. It's our community that encourages us to be united around faith. That's part of our curriculum. God uses the community and our life in the midst of it. If you separate yourself from community every time you have a difficult time or a struggle or something you don't understand about God, you are removing yourself from part of the planned curriculum. Now, you still are not removing yourself from the love of God. You are still not removing yourself from God's determination to complete it. But I think as we accept these things as part of the curriculum and then go to our community and say, I know God's teaching me something, but I have no idea what it is. Or I know Dave said God's teaching me something, but I don't believe it. <laughs> but when you go to your community and express that and say, I'm really struggling with this and I don't know what to do. Or even when you go practically and say, I don't know how to live by faith at this moment. I don't even know what the right response to this person or this situation is. Uh, what do you guys think? And you don't have to do what they say and you don't have to 
you're not looking to them for the expert answer, but you're looking to them to walk together in faith and God can work through that. So adopt the new perspective, accept the good and the bad and ask for help. And that's our five core values. One more to go. At Focus, we seek to make the church the best place to ask the most important questions, to make everyone's journey a little easier today by a kind word, a simple service, a stewardship of God's grace, to facilitate many-to-many discipleship rather than merely discussion, to encourage a unity of faith rather than a unanimity of thought and action, and to accept our life circumstances, good and bad, as part of God's curriculum together with our community. In your groups, by the way, just so you know, this is something we talk about as leaders, and that's that when you're doing a Bible study and somebody's life intercedes, that's not a distraction. That's the curriculum. I remember sitting in a Bible study once on joy. The Bible study was literally on joy. And there was one individual there who's clearly not joyous and really struggling with the whole study. And every time somebody would say something about joy, he would say something like, yeah, but I, but I don't feel that. What am I supposed to do about that? And somebody would say, well, it's a command. You're supposed to, feel, you're supposed to rejoice. And he'd say, yeah, but I don't feel that. And the leader would say, well, let's go back to the, to the verse. And they would just keep going. And he kept saying, kept saying, they go back to the verse. And finally, finally, towards the end of that study, the leader looked out at the, the, the person and said, hold on, just a second, hold on, hold on. We've looked at the scriptures on joy. What's going on in your life right now? And the gentleman began to talk about the financial struggles he was having, the bills that were due the next day, the problems that he was having, and how he didn't see how any of that, there was any joy in any of that. But an amazing thing happened as they began to talk about it, as they began to work through it. The gentleman himself began to come to conclusions about how the joy that was being spoken of in Scripture could in fact be present even at this moment in his life. And I know this on a very deep and personal level because I am that gentleman. <laughs> Surprise! Twist! That was good. Was that good? <laughs> the point is, even in our focus groups, we understand that when life intercedes in the groups, that's not a distraction. And I want you to understand that. If you're in the group and you feel like you're not on the same page with everyone else, it may be that God has a curriculum not only for you, but for everyone else, if you will be willing to share that. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at Pastor Mac, M-A-C, underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.